0: Hey, Rachel. Hey, Brian.
1: So how was your week?
0: Well, remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about that amazing new blog, you know, the one that was going to be a beacon of freedom in a time yes, of silence yes, and from lies the, from the
1: desk of Donald J. Trump. I remember. It yes. Very well. <laughs> yes.
0: Well, just now, 29 days after it launched, it is gone. It has disappeared into thin air,
1: just like everything else. Donald Trump starts just like yeah, this. Yeah, uh, jump stains, Trump water. Yeah.
0: So, but it does make me worry about what he's doing if he's not sitting there blogging. So it makes,
1: it makes me wonder who, who will carry the torch for the voice of liberty, democracy and a beacon of light for, for Mar-a-Lago. So I think we'll be fine. <laughs> I we're think gonna, we'll be
0: okay. We're going to all be okay.
1: <laughs> we're going to discuss that and much more. This is Nope.
0: The podcast where we shut it down.
1: We're just a couple New York Jews. Talking about the news, beating back the blues. We made a podcast and news why. Have to laugh so we don't cry. Come and join us for the ride. Welcome to. Okay, before we get started in this week's podcast, we have a couple of public service announcements. Rachel and I have made the bold, courageous decision that for our own sanity over the course of the summer, we are going to be releasing a podcast every other week. We've gone 168 episodes doing it virtually every week, um, and we just decided to do a little self-care. And uh, yes. maybe maybe the podcast will be a little better when we don't have to rush one out every single week.
0: It'll be an interesting experiment. We'll see.
1: Yes. But fear not. It is not out of lack of dedication to the podcast or to you, our listeners. We are as committed <laughs> as ever. Uh, we just need to take it easy on ourselves. And to that end, the second announcement is that with the next episode in two weeks, we're going to be starting again our summer music series in which we pick out the Worst slash most intriguing music videos of the last 30 years. And for an audio medium, we actually describe them for you literally and visually. Um, And usually it comes out uh, pretty fun. And it's just my pet project as a way to go revisit the music videos of the 80s, which are the ones I love. Um, So Rachel, we have a very yes. special guest. Would you We like have to a introduce very him?
0: special guest this week. Stephen Rogers, a retired professor of management from Harvard Business School, who has a truly excellent new book out called A Letter to My White Friends and Colleagues, What You Can Do Right Now to Help the Black Community. If you're wondering what to do, this book has the answers. And we're going to be talking about the book toward the end of the podcast. But for now, Steve will hopefully participate in all the nopes. Welcome, Steve,
2: to know. Nope. <laughs> Rachel, good evening. Rachel, thank you very much for having me, and Brian, uh, thank you for having me as well. Thank you.
1: You bet. You're so now, welcome. It- I, kn- I know that as a professor you have a lot of gravitas, and I know that from this book you have a lot of weighty thoughts about everything, but feel free to get a little silly with us because uh, we that's what we thrive on. So uh, I'll try. We'll do, this. we'll do the serious stuff at the end. Okay. Rachel, How you know for real, how's your week been? I noticed you're in Long Island City there. I see the picture in the yes. background that I recognize.
0: Um, can you hear the, the sound of silence?
1: Uh, ironically, <laughs> no, I don't. But that, that's the right I answer.
0: I am alone for the first time in over a year. I am going away for a girls weekend with some friends this weekend. And AJ has off from school tomorrow. So he and Josh went to Long Island about... I don't know, half an hour ago, and I am here by myself, and this is quite thrilling. Um, The first thing I did was make a Manhattan to get into the spirit of the podcast, and I'm sure I'll be missing them later, but for, for the moment, I am quite happy and living my best life. So,
1: Wonderful, yeah. Mazel yeah. Tov. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, um, if you're listening, if you're listening to me now, which by definition you are, you might hear that my voice sounds a little bit different. The recording is a little different. That's because I'm recording from my office tonight, um, and the reason for that is <laughs> that the efforts to deplatform me, which I've been discuss- discussing incessantly over the last few weeks, have now gone nuclear they have finally reached DEF CON one or five or whichever the worst one is. So you remember first they came and, and took me off of social media and then <laughs> they they confiscated all of my cables to connect one thing to another. And now they have put me in total solitary confinement and cut off the internet to my house. Who
0: is, who is <laughs> oh, they? <hello.
1: laughs> If you, if you know, please tell me because for the life of me, I can't know. So, so for the last like month or two, our internet has been flickering going on and off and it's been getting worse and worse. And it seems to happen in the late morning when most of the time I'm on Zoom doing important phone calls. And you can't be like interviewing someone for a job and then it flickers off and then it gets disconnected. It's No, it's
0: unacceptable. Yeah.
1: So finally, Doug and I, we called Spectrum, the internet provider where we are, Um, and they finally came out and they said, well, it's not in your building, it's on the block. So then they had to send another crew out to look at the block. They went to the block, they found the place and they said, oh yeah, we found the switch. The, the volume is, is not turned up high enough. Like the volume was too, like there's like a little, little dial. So is
0: everybody on your block not getting internet? So like Mariah Carey and like Taylor Swift, doesn't she live on your block?
1: Mariah Carey lives on my block. Taylor Swift's the block away. They are all cut off from the internet. They forgot, they forgot to turn the volume up. Um, So they, they turned the volume up, but not quite enough. So I still have not totally reliable internet and I didn't want to risk interrupting this podcast with an internet outage. So here I am in my office where in Midtown we have proper internet that is reliable. And I am just so happy to be here and I will get to the bottom of this somehow.
0: You are nothing if not dedicated. I I want to say I I have said
1: nothing (laughs) offensive. Oh, also I got the platform from Amazon. Steve, I have to say, I tried to buy your book the other day so that I could read it. I I will, I will be totally transparent. I have not read it because I tried to buy it on Amazon and they would not let me log in. So, um,
2: Having... This, this interview is over
1: then. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, Rachel read it. She's going go, right the to. There you go. Okay.
2: I'm, I'm
1: so, coming back. Now. I did. I did my very best, but someone's out there to get me and I promise I'll figure it out over the next. I
0: think you're before. just like, you forgot your like master password or something. I th- I think there's a fix to this. this yeah, is... but it's like
1: circular logic. Cause I have the last pass thing, but you need a password to get into it. And I don't have the password to get into it. And this is the...
0: Brian. This is like your Gen X meets boomer moment. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm
1: transitioning from Gen X into <laughs> Boomer now, and this is what it looks like right before your eyes. Okay, let's let's cut this story off, Rachel. We have some notes today before we get to our interview. Why don't you uh, kick it off?
0: Okay, okay. So we don't talk enough about sports on this podcast and that's talk, because we don't talk at all about we sports. We just don't talk about podcast. sports at all because we know virtually nothing about sports, but I do enjoy watching the occasional tennis match and I want to talk about what happened this week with Naomi Osaka withdrawing from the French Open because the way this all went down is a huge nope. And there was even an opinion article in the New York Times today with the headline, Naomi Osaka and the power of nope. So obviously this must be addressed here. And Steve, you talk about her in your book. So I know this topic has resonance for you too. Um, so Naomi Osaka is 23 years old, um, for anyone who's been living under a rock. She's the, you know, one of the best tennis players in the history of the game, the highest paid female athlete in the world and the person people really do tune into the French open to watch, but she wound up withdrawing from the French open this week because she didn't want to participate in press conferences and to explain this to her fans and why she was doing it. She released a statement on Twitter saying the truth is that I've suffered long bouts of depression since the U S open and two 2018. And I have a really hard time coping with that. Anyone that knows me knows I'm introverted. I'm not a natural public speaker and I get huge waves of anxiety before I speak to the world's media. Okay. This is very relatable. The past year has been a lot, even for regular people who are not famous athletes. I, too, have depression and anxiety. I cannot even imagine the pressure of these tournaments in the middle of a pandemic. And add that add to the fact that Naomi Osaka is a woman of color who was deeply affected by the murders of innocent Black people. At the U.S. Open last year, she wore masks with the names of victims of police violence on them, and she was asked really dumb questions about what the meaning of the masks were. And she was like, hello, what do you think the meaning is? And so here's this tremendous, extraordinary woman being honest about her mental health. And what do the officials at Roland Garros do? They say it is unacceptable and a phenomenal error that she's not doing press. She gets fined $15,000, which she's like, whatever, I don't care. Like, you know, she's <laughs> has so much money. And then the officials were saying that there could be further sanctions, including suspension, if she didn't agree to do these interviews. So she's like, forget it, I'm out. And then to top it off, the head of the French Tennis Federation, this idiot named Gilles Morton, calls a press conference after Naomi withdraws and says he's sorry and sad for Naomi Osaka and that he's looking forward to having her back at the tournament next year. And then he leaves the podium without taking any questions from journalists. So you call a press conference to announce that a player is withdrawing because she won't do press conferences and then you don't do press at the press conference to announce it.
1: Um, so <laughs> what's amazing, what's amazing to me is that somehow, like the greatest draw, I mean, these tennis, the only reason people are interested in tennis is less the game and more the players that especially tennis has these big outsized personalities. It's the heroes. It's like the Williams sisters and like her that like really draw people in and make it a Correct. human drama. And if you screw those people, you're screwing the whole game. And if they can't see that, that like, if, if the concept of doing a press conference conference is more important than being one of the most most (laughs) outstanding athletes in the history of the game, then what does that say about the game? I mean, it's, yeah,
0: it's, it's ridiculous. I'm a journalist and I'm a consumer of sports profiles and I can't get enough of all this information. And obviously I love it when athletes do press, but this is ridiculous. Like, especially this year in the middle of a pandemic, we need to focus on everybody's mental health. Athletes are human beings they are under tremendous stress and how hard is this to understand i i do not get it i cannot get my head around and
1: i'll go one further (laughs) this is going to be a controversial (laughs) opinion i prefer sometimes with certain athletes when they don't speak (laughs) like just shut up because sometimes (laughs) they say very stupid things Uh, or or they have nothing to say like they say like why did you win this game and you say well we just played better than the other team well of course (laughs) like
0: they're not, they're just living in the moment, playing the game. That's what they do. And sometimes you find it's disappointing because the athletes look, like they can't describe it. It's like it, def- it, their movements, their, their grace, their playing defies all logic and description, and they can't even find the words for it. So it doesn't even matter. The game speaks for itself.
1: I agree. Uh, Steve, what was the reference to uh, Naomi in the in the book? What what context did you bring her up?
2: Um, I literally cited her as being what I call a race woman and a race woman is a person who is interested in the uplifting of the black community. And so I cited her in the activities that um, Rachel pointed out earlier uh, that she did last year with wearing the mask, recognizing uh, the people who had been uh, murdered by the police. That this was an act of courage on her part and an act showing explicit support to the black community, and I applauded her for it.
1: Look, and I don't, I, I don't doubt that that was some part, you know, conscious or or subconscious as to why she wasn't in good favor. Like, I wonder if there were other people who had come forward with depression and things like that and withdrawn from the public eye a little bit. I wonder if they would have been treated the same way if she hadn't taken a courageous action like that. I mean, I, I don't know, I'm not I, in their heads. So uh, it, it just raises an eyebrow. It's
0: possible, it's, it's certainly possible. I yeah. mean, yeah. So, I mean, I guess there's nothing to say other than nope no, to nope. the French Open, nope <laughs> to Gilles Morton, and yup to Naomi Osaka for telling it like it is. I, I really just hope this changes the conversation around this ridiculous requirement that athletes do press. They shouldn't do it if they don't want to do it. That's all there is to say. Like, I, I don't, I don't get it. It, do, it doesn't make any sense. Okay. Nope. Um,
1: Gilles no, Morton. I just want to say his game name again. Gilles Morton. Is that his name?
0: Gilles Morton.
1: Morton. Like, nope to you. Nope, nope to, to you. you. Okay. Really. okay. Get I gotta, it together, Gilles. I'm going to change the mood of outrage a little bit here, um, but I'm going to stay international. France is international and people don't always think of Canada as international, but it is. Um, and they
0: speak French there, so some some,
1: some of them do, some. Um, and uh, I'm gonna tell a quick story here about a man named Will Amos, who is a member of the Canadian Parliament from the Liberal Party, which is the ruling party of Justin Trudeau. And in April, he was participating in a Zoom parliamentary call. And <laughs> the series of events here is a little unclear but he, he came back from a run and stripped down naked and was visible on the camera and it was being televised live and public, like on C-SPAN. Um, so
0: so the so like, so not only did other members of the parliament see him, but the, the entire Canadian their, public should they tune member. in? Yes, okay.
1: exactly, yes. And so there, there is a little question there about like, what was the sequence there? Like, did the meeting already start and he was late and he ran in like from his run and stripped down thinking he would change in time or was he like just came from a run started the meeting thought he'd change and then get back dressed again i like that is very confusing but he apologized for that and said it was an honest mistake that won't happen again
0: can happen okay. to anybody who among us has okay. not
1: but he, he made a promise and okay. people should keep to their promises, but you should be careful what you promise that it won't happen again,
2: because this <laughs> oh, week
1: no. it happened again, <laughs> except this week there was another parliamentary Zoom hearing. This one was not to the public, but it was visible within parliament, to the others in the meeting, and he urinated <laughs> without realizing he was on camera. <laughs>
0: He's like a moth to the flame. He can't get enough.
1: (laughs) And that, too, raises more questions than it answers. Like, did he carry the laptop with him into the bathroom? Was it off camera? Was it just the sound? Because who was it? Didn't Anthony Kennedy flush the toilet during a Supreme Court hearing? Yes. Yes. But this uh, there was a visual to this. So I guess maybe the the bathroom was visible in the background or something. Okay, so, so- No, it was he,
0: Breyer. It wasn't- Kennedy. It was
1: Breyer. <laughs> very Sorry. important. Corre-
0: Correction.
1: <laughs> it didn't drive Kennedy to, re- to retire. It's okay. because still there. Um, so it was visible to the other MPs. So that was a bridge too far. Um, he said that he was stepping down as, this was his portfolio, it's very interesting, as parliamentary secretary to the minister of innovation, science and industry. That's a lot, um, and he said that he's stepping down in a tweet. "Quote: So that I can seek assistance." What With kind head. of assistance do you need? Like a, just don't like a, a closing the door. Do just need better aim. <laughs> like what? Just don't be uh. naked in
0: front of Canadian Parliament. That's the rule. Just don't
1: it's pretty basic it's don't they teach you that in orientation like i had dinner with a congressperson last night and he was talking about they go through orientation where they teach you all the stuff you know, didn't they they should teach that in the canadian parliament initiation don't pee take keep your clothes on don't pee hold hold it in you can hold it in for, hold it in
0: for the meeting right. for the duration of the meeting yes
1: now the the picture i guess the the picture of the first incident where he was totally nude a uh, leak was published and it was all over social media and Canada's criminal law prohibits publishing, distributing or making available images, quote, of an intimate nature of a person knowing that the person depicted in the image did not give their consent. And it came out, they figured out who took the picture, which is a whole other story okay. named, uh, I was going to say named Gilles Mortien, but his name is <laughs> Sebastien Lemieux, <laughs> who's a member of Bloc Quebecois, uh, Celine to, Dion. Celine Dion. <laughs> <laughs> he acknowledged those French Canadians. They're a they're they're a breed unto themselves. Um, yes. I went to a French Canadian wedding once in, in Montreal. It was very interesting. It was very it was very Celine dion You know, I see where you come from. A Jewish that. wedding? No, it was French Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> was
0: I don't know there's a lot of Jews in Montreal.
1: They're not sure. French Canadian. They're like <laughs> Whatever. They, they okay. eat smoked meat. So, anyway, Sebastian Lemire uh, of Le Bloc Quebecois, Quebecois said uh, he acknowledged capturing the image, but he said he had no idea how it made its way to social media. I always am suspicious of those people. Like,
0: no idea? Like, you have no idea how on, it got your from camera. your phone. <laughs> like, it, it, it walked from your phone to Twitter.
1: Okay. Well, that's all I have on that story. I thought it was enough, but um, the answer is nope to Will Amos of the Liberal Party. Nope to stripping nude or urinating on your parliamentary calls.
0: But nope to the parliament because fool me once, shame on you. Fool Fool me twice, shame on me. He should have been ejected after the first incident.
1: Well, he ejected himself, so I yes. guess all's well that ends well. Okay, nope. Um, I have a couple more here. This is uh, I'm calling it the the beach bod package. Um, so we're kind of we're kind of having a bipolar summer. It was in the 90s the other day. It's going to be in the 90s this weekend. It was in the 50s and raining part of this week, and all we could think about is going to the beach. And uh, you know we want to have a great bod but having a great this is a long and tortured segue here i'm gonna do my (laughs) best i'm gonna get to the point
0: just get to the point
1: (laughs) (laughs) having a good beach bod means different things to different people so remember a few years ago there was hot girl summer and then there's hot boy summer and now i'm proud to announce that we are about to embark upon thigh guy summer like I
0: got oh okay right Right. okay this was
1: this was triggered by the uh actor Milo Ventimiglia who's now on this is us and previously on the Gilmore Girls right and there was a paparazzi shot of him leaving the gym um in shorts but they were kind of like short shorts and Vox did a long thick piece about this so I'm going to quote this because it's priceless he said they said that uh Vintimilia had thighs the size of rotisserie chickens. His (laughs) his 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 lack of inseam length turned his flying leg buttresses into something that felt even more dangerous because we aren't because we aren't used to seeing men's thighs in their full top to bottom hip to kneecap glory. Um, And so it became not just about the thighs, but now the shorter shorts like that were popular in the '70s, like the Bruce Jenner.
0: Dukes yeah, and- uh,
1: yeah, from the 70s, like the Olympic running shorts, uh, jogger shorts. In fact, the New York Post called the, the big thigh and shorts combo dangerous. And nobody knows fashion danger like the New York Post. That's what, <laughs> so, of course, it's then,
0: dangerous how? Like in, in- <laughs> it's
1: da- dangerously sexy <laughs> okay. um, drives people into <laughs> frenzy. Into a frenzy, <laughs> the vapors. Um, so, then of course, social media goes Those wild people. also. So, and it turns out it's not just Milo. Uh, Winston Duke, who's the star of us, and and it was in Black Panther, uh, has great thighs. K pop star Juan Ho, who I didn't know. Detroit Red Wings uh, star Dylan Larkin has what they call hockey butt and thighs, and Orlando Bloom. Um, And it's trickling through the economy now, through the personal trainer economy. There's this guy, Bobby McMullen, who's a personal trainer in DC. He says that fellow Jim slackers of fellow gym goers can spot a slacker because they're quote wearing sweats wearing sweats to the gym was a scandal because their presence implied that there might be something there that they're hiding a neglected Uh a neglected bottom half he said legs are probably my My top inbound requests for private sessions and on demand videos.
0: Oh, you know what's going on? Zoom meetings are ending and people are showing their bottom halves and they want to show their thighs.
1: (laughs) Maybe the maybe Will Amos really was just trying to show his thighs, but he wound up accidentally peeing in the process.
0: <laughs> he got overly excited.
1: Right, right. He said we've even tailored our live Zoom classes to have ass and legs in the title, so people know what they can expect. Okay. So it's just good marketing. Um, and so the sale correspondingly to the to the workouts, the sale of five inch inseams shorts are growing too. And if you see them, they're clearly too short. Those are not the they, shorts that, that is really short wear every day. Wow. You know and, what
0: scares me? Like you know when Tom Brown, the the fashion designer, was making those little pants for men with like the little yeah. angle showing yeah. and like men didn't wear those pants but it sort of pushed every other designer to go a little bit shorter right. and now that's going to happen with these shorts and every guy is going to start wearing shorter than normal well, shorts. i have
1: i have evidence to back that up because we are nothing if not data driven here on nope um i have an authority and his name you will recognize rachel is john genuzzi He's is, been
0: a he's a friend of Nope. He's been on this podcast. Yes. On, but
1: but more in his uh chocolate chip cookie baking context. But yes, uh, he has
0: a cookie company, Januzzi's cookies. They by, are quite but delicious.
1: But he's also a director of something at uh, bonobo's, and they launched a new rec short, um, which is five inch in and they're selling like hotcakes. And he said, Um, to be honest, in his, he said he's be,
0: the guy behind he's, this. He's like, the guy's
1: oh, he he like Push this well, product he line?
0: he was like an early adopter of this trend. Like he was wearing short shorts before anybody else.
1: Right. Well, he has, he says to be honest, in a zombie apocalypse, I want the legs, not the abs. And that's true. Yeah. Who wants yeah. someone who could do crunches to beat off the zombies? <laughs> I want big legs. I want I want to kick those zombies.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, and, he's right.
1: <laughs> and of course, in true capitalist culture, where there's a five inch inseam, there must be a four inch inseam. Oh, and that it's is, just
0: going to get smaller and that smaller.
1: T- <laughs> people are going to be wearing thongs soon. This comes from a competitor. I didn't even know this. There's a company called Chubbies, um, which is men's lower body wear i guess and <laughs> okay. they- that's- they have thigh wear and they now have a four inch inseam. So nope to, uh, yep to thighs, I guess, but nope to the obsession with thighs. We shouldn't obsess over anyone's body parts. We should all be well proportioned. And this is a tie-in to my whole problem with the, with my new jeans that I talked about last week, right? Yes, Where yeah, my- the ones
0: with the like weird um, zipper.
1: Right, yeah, well, I lost all this weight. My waist size went down. The zipper still doesn't work, but my thighs, if anything, have gotten bigger. So I'm now not proportional. So I have this like- weird waist with this weird zipper and my thighs are bulging, but I guess like, it's a good thing now. They're so. like wider
0: than your waist, but you're, you're ahead of the curve, like
1: literally. Anyway, nope to the whole trend. I don't want it. I have one more beach BeachBot item. And this is one of our classic items where the headline says it all. Here's the headline. This is from Newsweek, which I guess is still a thing. Um, woman's terrifying gym workout leaves people asking where her organs went. Um, okay. Now, as I said earlier, podcast is not a visual medium, but I will try to describe the video that is being referenced. <laughs> this is a woman named Noelle Leva. This was a TikTok video that got 12 million views. It's a 14 second clip.
0: That's like more views than the Oscars. That's actually that's (laughs) true.
1: (laughs) Well, when I describe it, you'll you'll go watch too, and you'll add plus one to the to the viewer total. Okay. So it's a clip. It's of this very fit, attractive uh, blonde woman. She's wearing a two piece like workout thing with a sports bra. She's right in front of the camera, sets it up. She backs away from the camera, and she says, "Okay, so I'm going to show you guys something. Let me know what you guys think." And it's hard for me, even as I do wordsmithing like this as part of my job, I, it's hard to describe what I saw with my own eyes. Um, simultaneously, her rib cage seems to inflate while her stomach kind of caves in on itself. Such she just there's... sucked
0: in her stomach? like.
1: But like, imagine that to the point where it's like her entire Like middle section is an inch thick as opposed to her ribs and backbone which are like a foot across Um, Mm. and indeed it looks like there is no room for her organs and there's two guys on her side they go what whoa gnarly I don't know people still said gnarly and one guy like pokes his finger in between her like rib cage to make sure that it's not like an optical illusion or something like a hologram, but uh-huh. it's, it's truly a, a vacant area. So this is a thing and it is known as stomach vacuuming, which if you had said that before, I would assume it was some sort of like get your stomach pumped, but it's not. It's a it's a workout. Um, and the the main controversy on social media is is not about whether this is a good or a bad thing, but where her which organs were disappeared in the process. It's clear that things went somewhere. So people were like, was it her lungs that went away? Was it her liver, her kidneys? Like, where did the things go? Did they come back when she exhaled? Um, so it turns out that this is a real thing that people do. There's this fitness company called Tena, T-N-A that writes, stomach vacuum is a weightless exercise you can perform to improve the strength of your core and your pelvic floor. The vacuum works the transverse abdominis, the layer of muscle behind that six pack you're hiding. As you build this muscle, you'll gaining more postural support. In addition, the newly added strength will assist in pulling in your internal organs and giving you a slimmer waistline. This is the stupidest
0: thing I've ever heard. (laughs) So it
1: it helps you pull in your organs and give you a slimmer waistline, but that presumes that you hold that not. position that you hold that position, which you will not. No. So I searched the web because we do our research here, and there are hundreds of images and videos about this. There's I found an eight-minute instructional video. I found an article in Cosmo that has step-by-step instructions and they tell you to practice daily, and you'll be able to do a little hey. of it in in a few weeks. And
0: okay. if you're doing stomach <laughs> vacuuming, just look inward, literally think about your choices.
1: Start with the man in the mirror. Ask, <laughs> yes. ask them to change their ways because this is not a good use <laughs> this of your is time. Not a good use of this is not a good way there to treat your body. There are plenty of other body. things you could be doing. Yes. Right. And, and they say it's good for a slimmer waistline, like but is it only slimmer when you're doing the sucking in? And are you supposed to like suck in and keep it there? Because it's not attractive. I'll tell you, just Google it. It is not attractive. Okay. So the, nope to stomach vacuuming. Nope this to is... stomach
0: No, take the time you're going to vacuum your stomach and, and read this wonderful book <laughs>
1: hey, by right Steve on, Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> not, they're, not, they're not mutually yes. exclusive. You can read <laughs> while vacuuming.
2: They're, they're all, they're, they're all, they're, let's let's segue from that. Yeah, there yes, we go. Let's, there let's we go. Okay. Enough silliness. Rachel, over okay. to you. Yes. Yeah.
0: So, Steve, I'm very excited to talk to you about your book, A Letter to My White Friends and Colleagues. Um, it's so powerful. So fascinating, I loved how you got right into it with your experience at Harvard Business School, why you left in the first chapter, which answers the question, who am I? And why should you trust my advice? And by the end, you're like, oh, okay, I I do trust this person's advice. So tell us about that, you know, I I found some of the data you cited um, really upsetting.
2: Um, Well, I'm an alum of Harvard Business School and I, I was a professor there for seven years. And I decided to leave specifically to officially retire in 2019. And I retired because um, I was tired of the anti-Black um, practices that seemed to be very common in the school where there was an absence of Blacks in leadership positions in, school, in the school, as well as um, the absence of Blacks in, in part of the content that was being taught to the students. And it was sort of a throwback. When I went to school there, Uh, 30 years ago, we had as many case studies that had Black protagonists as we had 30 years later. And it was almost when I, when I, and again, this is my alma mater. I love the school, but it was a throwback in time with going to Harvard Business School and seeing the absence of Black people almost throughout the entire fabric of the school. So I decided to retire after that experience. And prior to retiring, I sent a letter to the dean, to the uh, president of the entire university, uh, President Bacal, at which time I told him something was terribly wrong at Harvard Business School, and that something needed to happen um, intentionally and purposefully to change the anti-black practices uh, that were common within the school. And they were practices being practiced not only by whites, but non-whites as well, but there seemed to be the commonality to, to, to be um, towards black people in terms of the exclusion of blacks.
0: Yeah. And you include that, um, that letter in, in the book, which is really fascinating. Um, yeah. Um, could you tell us like what inspired you to write the book?
2: You know, Rachel, um, um, a little over a year ago, my daughter, my 32 year old daughter, she sent me an email a few days after George Floyd was murdered. And she said, dad, um, things are not going well and we need you to talk to the community as if you were the president of the United States. And so I did a podcast in response to that. And I did a podcast and it was targeting black people specifically. Um, And I recommended they do four things. One is I said to take care of themselves. That goes to what Brian was talking about earlier about um, um, the the tennis player um, who decided to take care of herself in terms of mental health. Uh, But I told people to take care of themselves relative to the pandemic. Number two, I told them to continue marching because they were justified in what they were doing. A man had been murdered and marching was appropriate for the circumstances and the protests and unrest was appropriate. Number three is I told them to go through the grieving process. Don't let somebody tell them not to grieve. And then finally I said, help white people, help the black community because many people were be, I heard that many people were uh, being annoyed and exasperated by the white friends reaching out to them and saying, how can I help? And they would be so uh, annoyed, they would say, don't ask me. I didn't create this problem, you create this problem. And so I thought that that was a teachable moment that we could not let get past us. And it reminded me of when Malcolm X was giving speeches throughout the country at universities and a young white woman after he gave one of his speech said to him, Malcolm X, how can I help? And he said, She said, what can I do? And he said, nothing. And he walked away from it. Mm -hmm. And he later said he always regretted it because she could have helped him help the Black community. So that was the spirit in which I did, wrote my book to uh, a targeted white audience saying, specifically, this is how you can help the Black community. No longer do you have to um, be frustrated with your inability to come up with tangible ideas. Here are four tangible things that you can do that would have an immediate positive impact. On the black community,
0: yeah, great. Well, you you give a lot of background in the book about the wealth gap that exists between blacks and whites in America. Could you talk about that a bit and what caused it?
2: Yeah, Rachel, um, I believe that the unrest and and the civil unrest and the protests, all of those things are just a symptom of the greater problem. And the great the greater problem is the wealth disparity between blacks and whites. I believe that fifty percent. Of the problems between Blacks and whites, more than 50% of it has to do with that wealth disparity. Where in America, uh, the average white family has a net worth of over $170,000 compared to $17,000 for the average Black family. The average Black family, 35% of the Black community, has zero net worth. And what I say is that the that came because America, in essence, the federal government and state governments, they subsidized very intentionally. Wealth creation for whites. They literally put a program in place in the form of 246 years of slavery, which was government-sanctioned socialist program, if you will. Where they, where it was intentionally done to enrich whites, while it was intentionally done to impoverish blacks. And that whole theme of enriching whites while intentionally impoverishing blacks continued even after slavery, with 60 years of black codes, where blacks were unfairly imprisoned and their services were uh, uh, lent out to private companies where private companies paid states um, to employ those people in their companies for a year. And those people had no compensation for the time that they were gonna be employed because they were in violation of these uh, black codes that were created by states under the heading of vagrancy laws that they were vagrant supposedly. After Emancipation Proclamation, Black people were required to have on their person actual contracts showing that they were employed. If they did not, they could be arrested for vagrancy. And if they couldn't pay the fee for vagrancy, then they not only would be arrested, their children would be indentured to white families to work for white families for free until they were 18 years old, a female, and 21 if they were male. So we had, again, a subsidy program that was designed to enrich whites and impoverish Blacks over some states had over 90% of their budget came from this convict leasing, the money that they earned from leasing out convicts. And then that was followed by 40 years of redlining where the federal government created a middle class by intentionally saying, we want to create a suburb and create suburbs throughout America following the second world war. Um, there was no middle class for the most part. There was no such thing, for example, as a 30-year mortgage. Right. That was five-
0: so interesting
2: in your book. Yeah. That was, yeah. And so most people who, who owned home they were rich. And so yeah. the government literally said, we're going to create a middle class. So what they decided to do to do that was they said, Dude, we're going to create the Federal Housing Administration. And the Federal Housing Administration will, in essence, guarantee mortgages that banks give to citizens to buy houses, thereby making the risk that banks took to give these mortgages to people, almost eliminating the risk because the mortgages now were guaranteed to the tune of about 90%. So the result of that was, and some people said, well, you know, the Italians, they were discriminated against. How were they able to benefit from that? Well, the federal government never had anything that said very explicitly that Italians or Irish or any other white group was excluded. They explicitly said that these people who would be eligible for these mortgages would be in communities that had a ranking of A, B, C, or D. A being a community theoretically that had no kind of risk, D being a community where there was chock full of risk. And risk was basically synonymous with what they use the term Negro. So any community that was in a D Um, that had a D ranking that a red line was drawn around that community by the federal government saying, we will not guarantee mortgages for people who live in those communities or want to buy houses in those communities outside. So literally, the federal government subsidized white wealth creation and buying homes. And shut them out. and, and, And they shut out Black people. Now, let me close with this, and that is, one of the great examples of this was in in the suburb of of Levittown, outside of New York, where um, developers built 17,000 homes. And those 17,000 homes, the financing for that came from a bank that had been given guaranteed financing by the federal government. Um, So the 17,000 homes were built. Some of the GIs paid as little as $800 for their homes. Today, those homes are worth over half a million dollars. But the federal government also required that those homes have covenants in there that said a Negro would never be able to occupy that home. On the West Coast, a a group of 400 families decided to do exactly what was done in Levittown. They wanted to develop this property that they had purchased right outside of Stanford University. They wanted to build a community just like they had built in Levittown. They had three Black families amongst their 400. The federal government said, we will not guarantee we will not subsidize we will not give guarantees to the banks for the development of that property and as a result of that the the, that group had to sell the land to a white developer who agreed not to have black people as part of the group and not to offer any of those properties to blacks so those were very explicit things done and then in terms of um, what i cited about the italians the italian community italian banks were able to flood the Italian community with mortgages for homes. And that was a beautiful thing. And because mortgages for banks are one of the most profitable securities that banks can give. And that was part of the start of the Bank of Italy, which was giving mortgages out, today being the Bank of America. Mm-hmm. No black bank was ever able to experience that because the federal government would never guarantee mortgages issued by black banks to black consumers. So, right,
0: so it would be the, higher risk, yeah.
2: Higher risk, so they wouldn't take the risk. So. What we see are three incidents of enrichment on the part of the federal government enriching whites while they explicitly said we're not going to give anything to blacks and actually sought to put blacks almost in bankruptcy. So I say today, the the financial condition of black people is exactly what the government always wanted it to be
0: right that's what led up to this and you know i guess that leads into the the, your case for reparations and i have to say like you know i've read about this before and i totally agree with you and inspired by your book i I wrote a letter to my representatives um, based on the template you provided and you know it it was really this week especially poignant to make this request on the 100th anniversary of the tulsa massacre which by the way i did not learn about that in school i only learned about no, that didn't. a couple of years ago. Brian, right. I suspect you didn't either. So um, so could you talk about that a bit?
2: Yes. Um, I make four recommendations in the book, and they're very explicit. One of them is deposit at least 9.29% of your money in Black-owned banks, and 9.29% represents the nine minutes and 29 seconds that the cop had his knee on George Floyd next. So the first recommendation is to do that, and the reason is because... Uh, Black banks, what we know is 70% of the mortgages they give go to Black people, whereas less than 1% of mortgages by white banks go to Black people. So that's the first recommendation. The second recommendation is to spend at least 9.29% of your annual budget with Black businesses, Black-owned businesses, because Black-owned businesses are the largest employers of Black people in the country. So when you spend your money, you're helping to employ Black people and improve our communities. The third thing I ask is, that you make at least a donation of 9.29% of your annual philanthropic donations to historically black colleges and universities. These are schools that date back to the 1850s. They were created because black people were barred from matriculating at predominantly white schools, despite the fact we were taxpayers. And these schools desperately need money. The average endowment is only $12 million. And they've been doing a phenomenal job of producing great leaders like Kamala Harris, the vice president, as well as, for example, 80% of all the Black judges in America come from an come from HBCU. Um, and then finally, I recommend that you support um, reparations to Blacks who are descendants of uh, Black people who are enslaved. And the reason is because America's never done anything in the form of any kind of reparations with Black people for the 246 years of enslavement that Blacks worked through, which was approximately 12 generations of no transference of wealth. In contrast, that transference of wealth happened with whites. So I recommend reparations to the tune of the difference between the 170,000 that we mentioned earlier and the 17,000. There's precedent for it. America actually gave checks, the federal government gave checks to 80,000 Japanese um, who were interned for three years, Japanese Americans who were interned for three years during the second world war. They also amazingly, They gave reparations to over 900 former slave owners um, to the tune of $300 per slave that uh, they lost as a result of emancipation. Um, And that was reparations given to slave owners. So, But Black people have never received any reparations of any kind from the federal government. The only attempt to do that was Special Order 15, where after um, the, the, the Union Army was marching through Uh, Savannah, Georgia, with uh, with victory against the Confederate. And Black people were leaving the plantations and following the Union Army. And General William Sherman was leading the Union Army at that time. And he wrote a letter to President Lincoln saying, all of these Negroes are following us. What should we do? President Lincoln said, ask them, what do they want? So he met with 20 clergymen, uh, General William Sherman, and he asked them, what do you want from the government? And the 20 clergymen unanimously said, we want land. So with that, there was an agreement that the federal government was gonna take 400,000 acres from the Confederacy who they were trying for treason and they were gonna parcel it out in parcels of 40 acres per black family at $1.25 an acre with 40% down. Um, Unfortunately, President Lincoln was murdered Um, after he was murdered when Andrew Johnson stepped in said it's unfair to whites to give this land to Black people. And and he rescinded that Special Order 15. Um, The Confederate soldiers who were to be tried for treason and some of them were to be hanged. They were in fact pardoned and all of their land was returned to them. And Blacks have never received anything. And to that, let me just say this. There's not a one group, racial or ethnic group in this country that has been more loyal to America than Blacks. Uh, no other racial or ethnic group has fought more wars on behalf of America than Blacks. Uh, but we've never been given anything for the things that I've cited in terms of uh, atrocities uh, by from our federal and our state government.
0: Yep.
1: Steve, could you recommend anywhere, just to make it even more explicit about what people can do tomorrow, is there an online resource where we could find Black owned banks uh, or black owned yes. businesses. Because I, I honestly I could Google it, but I wouldn't know where to start.
2: Super question. Now, now uh, Rachel knows this, but in my book, I have a chapter devoted to each one of the things I recommend. And in each chapter, for example, about black banks, I identify and give the names of all of the black owned banks in the country and how to contact them, as well as the same with HBCUs. I identify all. 101 HBCUs, as well as I give you direction as to how to find Black-owned businesses throughout the country. And then finally, as uh, Rachel pointed out, in terms of writing a letter to your congressman or congresswoman supporting reparations, there's an actual letter template that's in the book such that you can just simply can use just that. You just copy it. And yeah. Copy <laughs> that and send that to your, your congressman mm-hmm. or congresswoman. So that's what I would recommend. Get a link to my book. Uh, there's an ebook right now. Uh, that one can get, but you can get everything that I've recommended. I wanted to help you find a way to implement those things as quickly as possible.
1: Great. Well, we will be plastering that link everywhere. uh, Yeah. And Steve,
0: I got to tell you, in terms of um, spending money with Black-owned businesses, I noticed that when I got your book, there was, you know, a bag of Coffee beans and a yes. gift yes. card to a yes. bookshop called The Tattered Cover, and I was like, hmm, "This, this seems familiar." And I googled it, and it was recently purchased by this guy I used to work right. with. Do you know Kwame no, Spearman?
2: Seen, were, no, you know, yeah. I mean, met him once, and after he bought the book uh, store, I reached out to him. They just did a virtual uh, Arthur's um, interview with me a couple of weeks ago as well. But um okay. no, yeah. a really good guy. He's great. I'm really yeah. happy for him. Yes.
0: Yeah, it was awesome to, to see that he did that. Um, so yeah, I gotta give a shout out to the <laughs> Tattered Cover bookstore, which is where I will be buying my my books going forward. There you go.
1: Great. There you go. Well, thank you. See, that has been priceless and hopefully that's been uh, a, a sufficient uh, teaser for people to dig in deeper.
0: Yes, read this book, it's amazing. It's really just so important and, and so just well-written and so interesting. Okay, Rachel, now- thank
2: you very much for the endorsement. I, I really appreciate the fact that you've read it and you have taken ownership of the things that have been recommended. And I think others will have the same kind of response to it. These are things that can easily be done so that if people are sincerely interested in uh, making a difference and righting a wrong, these are things that they could do.
0: Yeah, it's things you can do today. I mean, there's a there's yes. one of the Black-owned banks that's right here in Long Island City, where I live. So I there will transfer a portion of my savings to that bank.
2: All and right. it's no risk. As we well know, the federal government guarantees yes. up to $250,000. So putting yeah. that money in the it's, bank is no risk. And I ask people to please put the money in and let it stay in a savings account uh, for three to five years so that that bank can get the benefit of what's called the money multiplier where they can lend out money to the community. And most black banks can't do that at, at a high rate because most of their depositors are poor black people. And what do people who are um, low income do if they have money in a bank account? First of all, they put very small sums in. Then secondly, and then they, withdraw they, take, it. Yeah. they withdraw it you know, uh, rapidly. So we yeah. need money to go into banks and stay there. And let me just say this in closing. Everything that I've recommended I have done and it's a part of my life as well.
1: Yeah. Great.
0: And it, yes, you can okay. tell when you read the book. <laughs> yeah,
1: so. Okay, thank you. We need to uh, go into the very last segment of the podcast which is the ups. These are the little rays of light, the little beacons of hope. That gave us hope through this terrible week. Rachel, what is yours?
0: My up goes to Steve. Um, <laughs> you and this wonderful book. Thank you for writing it. It was really um, a beacon of light this week for me. Well, yes.
1: now, now I'm going to feel inadequate because I am <laughs> I am giving my up to Jones Beach Theater, which will be hosting the uh, Hall and Oates concert on August Ooh. 11th. Rachel, to which I am taking you as my guest at <gasps> my treat as your as I'm your so birth excited. as your birthday present.
0: Oh, my birthday, <laughs> which Brian forgot my birthday like six months ago, but it's OK. <laughs> <laughs> All is forgiven. All is forgiven.
1: <laughs> They're good seats, too. I got, I got good right there. There you go. OK, okay.
2: Can, I, can I give you my beacon of hope? Oh, oh yes, yes please, please. Of course. Yes, you're up. Mine is the four documentaries that I viewed over the last few days um, on the Tulsa massacre. They were absolutely outstanding. And as Rachel said, they were informative, educational, and everybody should watch at least one of them because they were magnificent. And if you watch them, part of having hope, in my opinion, is recognizing what has happened in the past. And that's one of the things that has happened in our country in the past. So Thank you very
1: much. Yep, for that. Thank you so much. Well, Rachel, I really think this was one of the most edifying inspiring and actionable episodes we've had from, Abs- from our guests absolutely. We've had a lot, so thank you steve well, so we,
2: we add vacuuming the stomachs so of the things are-
1: <laughs> don't you dare <laughs> yeah. don't you dare do that and if you do don't blame it on us okay <laughs> it's been a terrible week but it's been a really fun podcast to record if you've enjoyed this please rate subscribe review we love your five-star tell a friend and tell you know? a friend we love all of that thank you for listening this has been nope
0: the podcast where we shut it down